The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those <clears throat> who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, <clears throat> and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. These are the words of the Lord. All right. Great to be with you. Excited to look at this text with you. Let's pray. Ask for help. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for your kindness to us, your goodness to us. Thank you for one another. Thank you for our Lord Jesus who brings us together. Thank you for your spirit who motivates us, enlightens us, teaches us. And uh, thank you for your word, Lord. We pray now that as we study your word, that you would do what you want in us through your word, for your glory, for our joy in you. Please help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. Help all of us, Lord, myself included, to be excited to have an interaction with the living God as we hear his voice from his word. Um, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and please, we look forward to what you will do, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to ask a question as we get started, and the question is this. Why participate in a local church? Why? Why church? It's an important question because survey after survey is showing that more and more Americans are finding church to be irrelevant. Irrelevant. It's especially true for younger generations. And it's not that, especially younger generations, it's not that they hate church. It's just that they find it to have no real value. It's simply not worth the effort or the time. There's better things to do. So why is this occurring in our culture? Well, the answer to that, obviously, like everything, is somewhat complicated. But I want to try to give you one reason as we get started this morning. One reason I think the church seems irrelevant more and more is that Christians have forgotten what makes church church. We've forgotten that answer to the question of why church. The reason I say this is because church is derivative. Do you know what I mean by derivative? Der something that's derivative is Derivative is based on another source. It's only as good as its source. It's derivative from that source. 
So a couple years ago, my family got to go to Honduras and visit uh, my sister-in-law and her family, who were missionaries there. And we went on this amazing hike up this tropical mountain, and there was this rushing stream with this kind of waterfall. And we actually, you know, we looked at it, jumped in the pool, checked it out. We were jumping off the waterfall. So much fun into this deep, clear, beautiful mountain stream. And this, uh, the stream led to this wonderful pond right there on the side of this mountain. But I've always, I've always remembered that if somehow that stream or that waterfall was cut off from that mountain pond, what do you think would happen to that pond? It would dry up. It would be stagnant. It would be, maybe there'd be a little water in it, but it'd be disgusting. You certainly couldn't jump into it because that pond is derivative from the stream, from the waterfall. And the church, guys, is just like that. The, a church is only as good as its gospel. A church is only as good as its gospel. Well, okay, what do I mean by that? Gospel means good news, right? Hey, this is it. This is the thing. This is what will do it for you. And every church has a gospel. The good news it's giving. This is what we're about. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm so aware of my own failures and our church's failures. We have them. Can we, if you go here, can you just admit that to everyone? Yes, we have them. So that makes me shy to critique the church because Lord knows I have failures. But it's worth thinking about. And here's what I want to think about with you. Some churches seem to say the good news is that we're always entertaining. I've been parts of churches like that. It's, it's going to be so entertaining. The good news is that we're never boring. But what if church becomes a show? Can't you find better shows than the church? Or what if you get tired of just a show? What happens to church if it's a show? It becomes irrelevant. It becomes not useful. Because it's derivative from its gospel. Uh, here's another one. The church is about being nice people. We'll find the nicest people. Now, this one rings close to us because I think you guys are very nice people, generally speaking, right? Super nice. People tell me, in all honesty, you have the kindest, nicest church. But I want to be careful because what if the church is about nice people? Well, what happens when, it happens every once in a while, doesn't it? You aren't nice. It happens. It happens. I'm not nice sometimes. What happens if someone comes here to find a nice group of people and then that moment happens and we're not nice? Or even worse, what if you think, I don't have to go to church to be a nice person. And guess what? You don't. There's a lot of really nice people who go to church. You see what I'm saying? The church is derivative. If the gospel is, hey, we're nice people, well, what happens when we're not nice? Or what happens when you don't need church to be nice? church becomes irrelevant. Maybe another church says it's about feeling happy and being successful. There are churches like this. If you just come here and kind of do the thing we're going to give you, you'll always be super happy and you'll succeed in life. What if that doesn't work? What if you keep struggling? What if you keep failing? What if you don't feel happy? Well, if the church said, well, you come here, you'll be happy, and you'll be successful, and it doesn't work anymore... And come on, sometimes a glass of wine and Netflix will make you feel happier than church. <laughs> if you're just trying to feel happy, church will become irrelevant. 
What I'm trying to show you is that the church is only as good as its gospel. It's only as healthy as the health of its gospel because the church, by definition, is derivative. The church is never the main thing in itself. It's formed by the main thing. That's so important to remember. And so at Fountain of Life, we want to emphasize we are far from perfect, but we believe that the lifeblood of a healthy church is the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the New Testament. That's our gospel. That's what we're, we're not selling it, but that's what we're proclaiming. That's what we're banking on. That's what we want to derive from, the person and work of Jesus from the New Testament. And so that's why we're thinking about our mission statement. We're doing this for about a month. We started last week, got a couple more weeks. Uh, if you're curious, after that, we're going to do a study through 1 John. So that's going to start later this month, study through 1 John. But first, our mission statement. Why is a mission statement important? I don't, I don't want to overdo it with a mission statement. You know, if somebody comes, what's the mission statement of your church? I kind of want to say the New Testament. The problem with that is, that's a lot to handle in one moment. <laughs> right? So a mission statement kind of gives you a clarity for the main thing. We saw, uh, we saw last time Jesus did this a little bit when he said, uh, you can sum up all the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean all of the other hundreds of commands in the Bible about how to love your neighbor aren't important? No, of course they're important. They're incredibly important for wisdom. But Jesus kind of gave you a mission statement on love, didn't he? These are the main things. If you emphasize these things, you'll be pointed in the right direction. So that's why we want to have a mission statement, something that gives us clarity for what to emphasize, that we can measure ourselves by, and that we can remember who we are by. Why church? So look at our mission statement with me, will you? It's not perfect. I'm, it's not perfect. But look at this. We read this with me. If you don't want to, but that's cheesy, you don't have to. But some of you read this with me. Here we go. Grounded in the gospel, we gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. Did you see a word repeated there a couple times? Gospel, the beautiful news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to emphasize. That's what we're about. That's what we want to hold up. That's what we want people to see. And last week we looked at we wanted to be grounded in the gospel. So we, we, we saw how Jesus is the anchor for our soul, if you were here last week, where your heart, your soul, your, your hopes, your righteousness, your identity, your security, your future is planted, grounded right here on who Jesus is and what he's done. So this morning, we're looking at the next step. What happens if you're grounded in the gospel? Well, you're going to gather with others to do what? Grow in that gospel. Because nobody's made it to where you perfectly get and live and obey and trust the gospel. We need to grow in that. How do we do that? The main way is we gather with others to grow in the gospel. So we're going to look at that idea from this passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians. Just a teeny bit of background. Thessalonians... Um, they were a healthy church, but a little bit fragile. From the beginning when they were planted, they suffered persecution. The persecution was fierce. Paul had to leave. He later sent Timothy to check on them. Timothy went and visited, found they're doing good, they're faithful, but they have some questions. So Paul writes this letter to help them out with some important issues and to encourage them. And so there's four things I want you to see for main sections here. I want to walk through with you as we go through this passage. Number one, the grounding the grounding, the foundation. 
Number two, the therefore that comes from the grounding. Number three, the practical. How do we live this out? And number four, the blessing. The grounding, the therefore, the practical, the blessing. So, a little more background on 1 Thessalonians. A major theme of 1 Thessalonians is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big deal in any scenario. The idea that Jesus is going to come back. What's that going to be like? It's especially pertinent for those who are in persecution. When people are mistreating you, what do you tend to want? Justice? Revenge? Okay? Don't do that. What do we want to rely on when we're mistreated, ultimately? Jesus is coming back, and he's going to right the wrongs, and he's going to vindicate his people, hoping that he's coming back. And so Paul talks about how Jesus is going to come surprisingly in judgment. So look with me, will you? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. Paul says, For you, are, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come, Like a thief in the night. While people are saying, hey, there's peace and security. Then sudden, what? Destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Like a thief, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing about thieves, right? They don't call you up and be like, I was wondering if you're going to be around on Friday. Because I want to steal all your stuff. Are you going to be there? No? Good, perfect. That's when I'll come. That's not how it works. They come surprisingly. It's the only way it works. Jesus' return will be a surprise. It will be a surprise. You, you won't get a, there, there won't be riding in the sky. You've got two weeks to get it all together. In fact, people will be saying, peace and security. We're good. Keep rolling. And then, caught red-handed. Boom, he's here, a surprise. And so here's the warning. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because to be honest, this is the most terrifying thing that could ever possibly be. It's the, most terrible th- it's the most terrifying thing it could ever possibly be. Have you ever been caught red-handed doing something gnarly? Can you remember? And the light comes on, and it's so bad that you can't even try an excuse because it's just, here we are. Jesus' return is going to be like that. And his knowledge is so perfect, and his his holiness is so complete, that he knows all your motives, all your thoughts, every word. I'm done right there. If all I was judged by was by what I've said over for me, judgment. And then how about the good things you didn't do? That's another problem for me as well. Good things I decided not to do. To stand before the glorified Christ and answer that the time to the time to try to live the right life is over now. The grade is here. Exposed. It's terrifying. And that's why many will not escape. Justice has come. But look now at verse 9. As we think, what I, I want to I want to ask you, what's your hope? What's your foundation for that moment? What are you going to look to? What are you going to look to? I had a conversation with somebody the other day. I asked him pretty much this question. We were having a great conversation. And he said he looks to saints and what other people have done. I just want to tell you, that's not how it's going to work. 
What do you look to? Some people look to their, their good works. I, I've, I've been a nice person. Every time? I remember a party I was at once and um, having a religious discussion. This doesn't always happen in my life, by the way. I just bring them up in sermons. This doesn't always happen in my life. <laughs> I was having a religious conversation with this guy, and he's standing next to his ex-wife. And I know that they had had a lot of difficulty in their relationship. And he told me, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I looked at her, and she kind of went like this. Because <laughs> she's seen it. It's kind of like if I, if I was preaching how great I am, and then my mother was here for a visit. And you could look to her, and she'd... <laughs> really? You keep your own standards? Do you keep God's standards? What are you going to hope in when Jesus comes back, when you face him? Look at verse 9. Verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Isn't this beautiful? If you're a Christian, you aren't destined for wrath. That's not God's plan for where you're going. But we see wrath is coming, isn't it? Wrath is coming. It's God's just anger over evil. It must come, for God is just. And in a sense, we hope in this. Don't you need God to be just and wrathful over evil? Haven't you, haven't you seen the awful stories in the world and thought, the wicked just get away with it? Or, you know, if, you, if you're a World War II history buff, Hitler did all that evil and then he just kills himself and he's done? Does it feel like justice was done there? Or do you need a little more? We need more. And as we think of all the evils and injustices in the world, we need somebody like Jesus to come back and bring justice. We need it. It's the only hope for the world. I think it was Tim Keller who said something like this, Without God's wrath, what hope is there, is for the, is there for the world? But Then he said, But with God's wrath, what hope is there for me? And that's our problem. I need justice out there, but then, ha, I deserve justice. Here's what you need to be grounded on when it comes to the day of judgment. Because what's our mission statement? Grounded in the gospel. Where do you put your feet for whether or not you'll be all right when you stand before Jesus? Don't put it on anything other than the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Did you see it? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Isn't that great? Why do you know there's not going to be any wrath for you when Jesus comes back in just fury? This is how it works for me. Because Jesus, I, I trust by his promises, Jesus and I will look each other in the eye and no wrath will fall on me because he would basically say, I already wore every ounce of wrath that you deserved. He died for us. He took God's wrath that you and I deserve upon himself on the cross. And the reason I can be grounded for that day of his return is not that I don't deserve wrath, but it's that someone else has already paid the price that I deserve to pay. No wrath. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's gone. Why is it gone? Somebody else already paid it. He died for us. Isn't that wonderful? 
grounded in the gospel. That's what we're talking about, to be grounded in the gospel for that moment. And don't you love that he, um, he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, uh, for Thessalonians, the awake people are those who haven't physically died yet. The asleep are, are the people who already have physically died. But Paul is saying both of those folks, whether you've died yet or not, Jesus died for you so that you could be with him. Your friends and family members who've already died and trusted in Christ, guess where they are? They're with him. Even, even by the Holy Spirit, guess, who, guess who's with us? Jesus is with us. And the whole reason he did this, this project, was to bring us to himself so that we could be with him. Right? That has the sense of friendship, fellowship, joy, love, grounded in the gospel. So do you see what Paul's doing here? This is part one. The grounding. When it comes to the biggest question of all, when Jesus comes back, and we ante up for how we've lived. What's your hope? What are you grounded in? The gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope that's what you trust in for that final day. I hope that's what you trust in for when you meet God. I hope you don't trust in anything other than Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Because that's the only thing God will take. But it is more than enough to satisfy him. And he is happy to take it. Be grounded in the gospel. Okay, the next part, therefore. Look at verse 11. What's the first word? Therefore. Uh, you've heard the, the dumb Sunday school cliche, right? I'm going to drop it on you again. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Okay. Why? Why is the word therefore important? Because it's cause and effect. Because this is here then this must also be here. You can't have this without that, but if you have this, you have to have that. Do you see? The therefore connects it. And look at verse 11. So Paul is saying, because you're grounded in the gospel for that final day, because that's your hope, therefore, encourage, and what are the next two words? One another. Friends, the entire New Testament works like this. If you believe the gospel, therefore, one another. If you love Jesus, therefore, other Christians. It's in every letter. Look it up. The author will tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then he'll say, therefore, these people. Always. Every time. Every time. When you're grounded in the gospel, you'll be inclined towards other people who believe the gospel. When you are loved by Jesus and you're amazed by that, you'll love him as well and you'll love what he loves. And Jesus loves, who's he love? His church. He loves the church. Moreover, the church is not only his bride, it's his body. If you want to taste and know Jesus, you need to be connected into the church. I own a book called They Love Jesus But Not the Church. And it's not that every point in the book doesn't have some value. Because listen, I understand church can be painful. Any of you know that? Of course. Church can be painful. I understand that it can be hard to bear a church that's not focused on Christ. I understand that. But if you love Jesus, did you see this? Therefore, one another. The gospel, therefore, one another. One another means knowing and growing in Christ with a local body of believers. 
Do you love the church? You love the church. How do you know you love the church? Because I find it hard to love a vague group of theoretical people I've never interacted with. You know what I mean? You love the church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which ones? Yeah, sure, we should be inclined, ready to love those we don't know. But love? How do you love someone practically you never rub shoulders with? How do you love someone practically you don't know anybody's name? You've never looked anybody in the eye, haven't listened to anybody, haven't served anybody, haven't been served, haven't been listened to, haven't been helped. Love is local. Love is local. It has to be to be real. Which means this therefore is, you believe the gospel, you're grounded in the gospel, what do you do next? You gather to grow in the gospel. That's what you do. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What's it mean to encourage? Console, strengthen, give courage to, help, press on. Life's hard. You know a believer. You, you're, you're in their life. Come on, we can make it. I'm here for you. Let's go. Let's press on together. Do you see this command? You ground in the gospel. Let's gather to grow in the gospel. It even says build up one another. It's like build a house, repair, establish, grow the thing. Bring it to where it needs to go. Gather to grow in the gospel. Build up one another. What a great command, huh? What's Paul telling you to do? Are you grounded in the gospel? What should you do? Gather to grow. Build one another up. Encourage one another. So we've seen the grounded. We're grounded in the gospel. And now we've seen the therefore. Gather to grow in the gospel with other believers. Number three, got to get practical. Practical. So we're about to look at verses 12 and following. And as you may have noticed, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's very rich. And it's nuts and bolts practical on how the community works together to grow in the gospel. So because we don't have time to go through all of this in great detail, I'm going to try to fly over it and summarize it for you. And here's what I want you to see. Test it. I want you to see that why are these aspects here? You're going to see a leadership aspect. You're going to see a community relationship aspect. You're going to see a community perspective aspect. You're going to see a discernment aspect. Four really important aspects of the church. But I want you to see how the idea of gathering to grow in the gospel forms each one of them. The reason each one of these things exists is the therefore. Because you're grounded in the gospel, gather to grow up in that. So let's start. Look at verses 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. What, what's that about? What's that about? Well, Paul... Uh, Paul here is talking about probably the elders of the church. Uh, foundation of the structure of a local church is qualified leaders. And here Paul's referring to elders. And just so you know what's going on here, I want to show you. Um, elders are men exemplary in character, able to give instruction in the gospel. Here at Fountain of Life, I'm one of the elders. But let me show you from the scriptures. Look at Titus 1.7. You can see this word overseer. It's the same thing as elder, same thing as pastor. Titus 1.7, 7. 
For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Why does he need to be such an example of the faith? I mean, what Christian shouldn't be like that, by the way? All of them, right? Why does he need to be an example, a genuine example of the faith? Well, don't you know, does it build you up when someone's trying to tell you something but is a total hypocrite in how they live? You can't listen to that. You don't want that. So there needs to be a genuineness to that. Look at verse 9. Here's what else an elder must do. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. What are those next two words? As taught. You don't get to, to, to fly to new regions with the Bible. We have a faith once for all delivered to the saints. We know what Christianity is. And the elder must know that and teach that. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. But why? Why does an elder of a church have to be a good example of Christian living and be able to know and teach the Bible? It's so that the church can be grounded in the gospel and gather to grow in the gospel. That's the entire point. This is so important. Look at Acts 14, 23. Paul believes qualified elders are healthy to, or are key to a healthy church. Acts 14, 23. This is the story of the early history of the church. When they had appointed elders for them, here's the phrase I want you to see. Where? Elders where? In every church. To Paul, you're not done planning the church until there's elders in the church. And who are elders? Are qualified in character and in teaching. Back to our passage in Thessalonians. We ask you, Paul says to the local church, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We're reminded that there's a certain kind of authority, right? A pastor and elder has. But the authority is only there so there can be admonishment, encouragement, and teaching. And the point of that is that you could what? Grow in the gospel. I'm trying this every Sunday. <laughs> We're trying this all the time. That's the goal. And then it's awkward to preach about my own role, but hey, it's God's word, right? I didn't write this. Look again at 13, verse 13. To esteem them very highly, key phrase, in, <laughs> in love, right? Because of their work. Why does Paul tell the Thessalonians to esteem the leaders who help them grow in the gospel? And why does he tell them to do that in love? Number one, love. Elders make mistakes. I'm very flawed. I'm very weak. What do I need as much as you? Love. But if God has put elders in a church to help that church grow in the gospel, and your goal for yourself is to what? Grow in the gospel. How will you esteem people like that? You value them. Is it because of, of a title? No. Is it because of some amazing charismatic skill thing? No. It's because God puts people in the local church to help the church grow in the gospel. And if you're hungry to grow in the gospel, you'll value that. Because this is how God does it. 
I know that's nuts and bolts practical, isn't it? Are we talking about church leadership today? Yeah, sort of, but why? But why? Do you see how important this is? If you love the gospel, there's a therefore. Therefore, one another. And part of the one another is qualified elders. Why? Because this is God's design for helping his people gather to grow in the gospel. Value it. It forms church leadership. Second, growing in the gospel forms community relationships. I mean, there's so much in verses 13 to 15. Let's just walk through it. Verse 13. What should we do together? Be at peace among yourselves. Isn't it funny he has to say that to churches sometimes? Why do we have to say that to each other? Chillax on each other. Be at peace. Why? Why should you work to be at peace? Why should you make sure you forgive? Why should you make sure you're kind? Well, because Jesus has forgiven you. He's been kind to you. You're grounded in the gospel. Live this out. Be at peace with one another. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers. This is probably the whole local church here, brothers and sisters. So to help you stay awake, to help me keep going, I'm going to give you a kind of person, and you tell me from verse 14 how you're supposed to treat that kind of person. So look, right here in the book. Verse 14. We urge you, brothers. Okay, there's idle people. What's it mean to be idle? They're lazy about their life with God. They're lazy about their life with God. And how should you respond to them? Anybody see it? I dare you to say it out loud. What are you supposed to do? Admonish the idol. Why would you do that? Is it because we want to be self-righteous jerks? No. We've all been, have you been a little bit idle before in your faith? Maybe some of you are there right now. Why do you need to be admonished? Why do you need to have somebody come up and say, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Jesus died for you, rose for you, reigns for you. Come on. Live this out. Seek this out. It's love. And we're admonishing the idol to help them what? Be grounded in the gospel and grow in the gospel. This is community life. Gather to grow. Look at the next group. Faint-hearted. You ever feel faint-hearted? I don't think I can make it. I don't think my faith's strong enough. My life's too hard. I'm lost. I'm alone. Help me. What do I do? What do you do for the faint-hearted? Encourage. Which means if you're coming to church... You're looking for faint-hearted people. Listening to them, what do you want to do for them? Encourage them. Why would you do that? Because Jesus does it for us. We're grounded in the gospel, and we gather to do what? Grow in the gospel. Or how about the weak? That's a, that's a junk drawer, right? Weak. Weak in what way? Sure. Okay, that way. Weak. Church. Who should we be looking for? The weak. Or maybe you are weak. What do we do with the weak? We're all weak sometimes, right? Anybody never weak? If you raise your hand there, you're really weak. I don't know. I just. <laughs> but what do, the, what do the weak need? Help. Help the weak. Help them. In what way? I, what do they need? But look for it. Want it. Why? Because we're grounded in the gospel. We want to gather and grow in the gospel. And who are we patient with? I love the word all in the Greek here. It means all. Okay. All. Who does everyone deserve? Or sorry, who? What? What does everyone deserve? Patience. Praise God. Praise God. So I've been a Christian for a long time now. I'm 43 years old. I've been a pastor for 15 and a half years, and this is all I have to show you. 
And it took a long time to get here. And God has been so patient with me. Are you glad God's, God is patient with you? He doesn't just drop every amount of sanctification on you in one horrid. He could never endure it. People change slowly. And God is patient with us. And because we're grounding the gospel, God is patient with us. What should we be towards one another? Patient. So when they're idle and you admonish them and they don't quite move along, what should you be? Patient. When they're faint-hearted and you try to encourage them, they're still faint-hearted again, what should you be? Patient. When they're weak and you try to help them, they're still a little weak, what should you be? Etc. Patient. Why? It's the gospel. Patient with them all. Look at verse 15. And, you know, this is for us to do for one another. This is unbelievable. See that no one does what? Repays evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Community relationships. Uh, when should we repay evil for evil? Never. And yet that's like a hobby for me. Um, come on, think about it. Think about it. Um, marriage relationship. Why'd you drop that nasty thing you said? Why'd you do it? Well, that person deserved it, right? Can I get an amen? They deserved it. That's why you did it. See, you thought you hated evil, and you were so fired up about how much you hated evil when that other person did evil to you, but then you got exposed. It's not really evil you hate because you responded with evil. What you hate is being slighted. We're prideful. Don't ever respond to evil with evil. And whose responsibility is it to help us never do that? Ours. Why would we want to do that? Because of the gospel. We're grounded in that. We want to gather to grow. Do you see how this changes community relationships? Unreal. It, it, it forms our leadership. It forms community relationships. It forms perspective. Now look at verses 16 to 18. Each one of these deserves a whole sermon all on their own. Obviously can't do that right now. So, so first as we look at 16 to 18, we're thinking of our perspective. Let's, let's notice a few words. Uh, the second word in verse 16. What is it? Rejoice. Always, now look at the idea at the end of 17, pray. When? Without ceasing. Verse 18, we're told to give thanks. When should we give thanks? In all circumstances. Did you notice? All the time. Every time. You ever had the question, what's God's will for my life? And we're kind of hoping for a bulletin to shoot down, hand in our hands. Oh, on March 2nd, I should apply for that job over there. You know? It doesn't happen that way, does it? Here, look, uh, I'm not a prophet, but I know God's will for your life. Did you see the end of say, eight, verse 18? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What should you do in verse 16? Rejoice. That's God's will. What should you do in verse 17? Pray without ceasing. Verse 18, what should you do? This is God's will. Give thanks. When? Now, you, bet, you need to be thinking about this. Life is so hard. How is it possible to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances? You better have a good answer to that. You better have a good answer to that. And that's why step two follows step one. What are you grounded in? You better be grounded in the gospel, which means you always have Jesus and what he's done. That is the only way these verses work. If you don't have Jesus, don't even try to rejoice always. 
you don't have Jesus, don't bother trying to give thanks in all circumstances. You can't. But if you have Jesus and his love and his salvation and his promises and his protection and his provision and his word and his people, then you can rejoice in Jesus when? Always, even if he's all you've got. And you'll pray without ceasing because you know you have him and you're relying on him and you're asking him and you're looking to him. And you can give thanks all the time because thankfulness, you know, somebody's been good to you and they're going to keep being good to you. And who do you have? You have Jesus. But this is in community. You know who helps me rejoice sometimes when I don't feel like it? It's you. Thank you. Have you ever had your church members help you give thanks even when you didn't think there's anything to be thankful for? Did you ever remember you needed to pray and it was going to church to help you get started praying? Or think of little things like this. Does anybody, I, I, I'll give you a dollar if you remember what song we sang first song this morning, okay? After the service, if you're on the praise team, you don't count. <laughs> we sang the song Rejoice. Even that small thing, I didn't pay attention to what the first song was. Well, we do. I paid attention to it. Come and stand before your maker, full of wonder, full of fear. Come behold his power and glory, yet with confidence drawn near. Why are we singing that first thing? Because I know what your week was like, and you got told all these other stories about what life is about, and you have all these narratives about what's good in life and what to live for. And you got in here and you, for, you forgot how to rejoice always, and me too. And you forgot how to give thanks in all circumstances. And we start singing the gospel together. And maybe, did some of you notice what starts kicking up in you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And already as we sang, what, were, what was happening? You were gathering to grow in the gospel. So we've seen it. Uh, we've got... The grounding in the gospel. Then there's the therefore, one another from the gospel. And then we're seeing practical nuts and bolts, church leadership, community relationship, our perspective. Here's one more. Gather to grow in discernment. Discernment. Look at verses 19, 20. What does this mean? Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Don't quench the spirit. What does that mean? Hmm. God, the Holy Spirit, is moving in his people. And the word quench has the idea of don't put out a fire. So God's, God, the Holy Spirit, moves like fire, motivating us to trust and love and follow Jesus in every way. The Spirit's working. That's what we pray for. That's what we're praying for this morning. Spirit work. And he works through his word. He works through his word. As the truth of God is communicated, the Spirit of God works. But here's the amazing thing. Don't quench the Spirit. So what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean that you can do, evidently? You can put out the fire. You can dry up the pond in some way. He wouldn't tell you not to quench the Spirit unless in some way you could. How? There's two ways we oppose the Holy Spirit's work in our own community. Two ways here. Number one, he said, don't despise prophecies. What does that mean? Well, 
I'm going to try to tell you in a second. But first, just think of the two ways we can quench the Spirit. Number one, don't despise prophecies. That's one way. And the second one is not to test the prophecies. So how do we quench the Spirit? Don't despise prophecies. Number two, not to test the prophecies. Is anybody thinking, what? Let me try to explain. What is prophecy? Some of you have in mind maybe something like, you know, I stand up here and you over there, you had troubles in your past. You know? <laughs> it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. Biblical prophecy is skillfully communicating God's truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's communicating God's truth by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And I hope this next part isn't boring, but I'm going to tell it to you because it's really important. Very clearly in Scripture, there are kind of two levels of prophecy. Let me show you the first. The first way is to see it in Ephesians 2, verse 19 and following. Look at Ephesians 2, 19. So Paul's talking to the church. He says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Here's what I want you to see. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now stay there for a second. The stone that holds us together, the house, is the person and work of Jesus. Do you see how we're grounded in the gospel? Yes. And the foundation of that house is the teaching, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. How do you know what the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles said? The Bible, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. That's A-level prophecy. We don't test that prophecy. That prophecy tests us. This is the perfect word of God, the inspired word of God, the apostles and the prophets. It's the foundation of who we are. And by the way, look now at Ephesians 2.21. In Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, what's that next word? Grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built into the temple as we stand on the foundation of God's word by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's top shelf prophecy. But there's another level of prophecy in the Bible. God's regular folks sharing God's truth. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said, everybody, everybody's going to share God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's fulfilling the prophet Joel. Regular kinds of prophecy. So let me give you two of these. The primary aspect of regular kind of prophecy is preaching. It's preaching. This verse could easily say, do not despise preaching. Let me prove it to you. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. What's Paul say to Timothy? Timothy's a young pastor. I love the, the letters to Timothy. Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Two things every pastor really needs to analyze. What do they need to analyze? How you living. Number two, what are you teaching? You better watch. Why do I need to watch? Because it's, it's not about me. Every pastor deeply influences their church 
And whether or not they're grounded in the gospel, whether or not they're growing in the gospel, I better watch how I live, and I better watch what I teach. And you should watch it too. And why is it so important? Look at this. This is unbelievable. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will what? Save yourself and who else? Your hearers. This is huge. Now, ultimately, who saves you? Good heavens, it's not me or any other pastor. It's Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But how do you know him more and more deeply? The sanctification aspect of your salvation, a deep part of how that happens, is what the pastor teaches you. It saves you in some way according to this passage. How serious is that? How big of a deal is that to you? This is God's design. I didn't make this up. This is how it works. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, look at this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead. Look, if anybody starts anything like that, wake up. Verse 2, what, are, what, what am I supposed to do? Preach the word. When? Always. In season, is that, in season and out of season. I don't even know what that means, but I'm either in one or out of one, right? What should I do? Preach it. It saves. Now back to what Paul said in here in Thessalonians. Don't do, don't do what to prophecies? Don't despise them. Don't look down on them. Uh, uh. Because why? What do sermons do? Hopefully they help you be grounded in the gospel and help you grow in the gospel. And that's what church is about. And that's what God's will for your life is about. And if this is God's major tool, a major tool for how he does this in your life, what should your response be to that? Let's eat. I want to grow. There's a second layer of normal prophecy. And that's one Christian to another. It's one Christian to another. You've experienced this, haven't you, before? You're praying for somebody or in a moment, and you just think, God helped me have the right thing to say. Or you were able to be like, oh, I, I, know, I know what God's word says about this, and you shared this with somebody. This is, this, is, this is you, everybody, sharing God's word with one another so that somebody else can grow in the gospel. Here's an example, Colossians 3.16. This is to the, to the church Everyone, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, teaching psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Who does that? You do. That's what we, that's what we want to see in meetings over coffee or in, in our growth groups. And what are we not supposed to do? Don't despise that. Don't despise it when your friend shares with you. Don't despise sharing with your friend. Communicate God's word to one another prayerfully, insightfully. But there was two ways to quench what the Spirit's doing. One is to despise prophecy. Do you remember what the other one was? It's not to test it. In other words, you Quench the Spirit's work sometimes when you don't test the prophecy. Again, we're not talking about testing this, are we? What is this? 
This is the standard by which to test. This is the standard by which to test. Have you noticed that I am not perfect in what I say about the Bible? What should you test everything I preach to you by? The Bible. Have you noticed that you aren't perfect in the way you apply the Bible? What should you test everything by? The Bible. And this is the major problem in the church today, in America and globally. We quench the power of the Holy Spirit by not testing what we hear by the Bible. This very morning, I read about an article, or I read the article, about a church in Tanzania where several people died during, um, they, were, they were trampled upon. And their holy apostle teacher had poured out anointing oil on the ground. And they all ran up to touch it. There's many problems there. But a huge problem there was this. What? Nobody was able to test. Nobody had discernment to say, this is absolute, I don't know the word for it, will be nice, heresy. Nobody could test. Friends, can, do you test the podcast you're listening to? You test the YouTube videos? Do you test the preachers on TV? Do you test the devotional you're reading? Do you test the new method to pull off whatever? We quench the spirit when we don't listen, and we also quench the spirit when we don't listen with discernment. You see how important this is? Discernment. And why does, why does discernment matter? Because we want to be grounded in what? The gospel. And guess what there's a lot of fake versions of? The gospel. And discernment matters because we want to gather to, to what? Grow in the gospel, which means we need to make sure we're believing the truth. So I'm backing up again. What do we want to be grounded in? You've heard it, the gospel. And the gospel brings a therefore, and the therefore is one another. We want to gather together to grow in the gospel. And we've seen this in such practical ways, church leadership, community relationships, perspective on life, even discernment on how we share and hear God's word. It's so important, verse 22, where Paul said, abstain from every form of evil. That in context means abstain from believing junk because you're discerning. Let's end with this, our blessing. Look at verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This is so beautiful because we see ultimate, who is it ultimately that's working in us to, to change us, to make us like Jesus? It's God. And so we see that we gather to grow in the gospel not because the power to make one another grow is in ourselves. Oh no, who's growing us as we meet together? He is. He sanctifies us. He makes us blameless. He gets us ready for that final day. And Paul says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. But it's so powerful to see 
that we can know we'll be ready for Jesus when he returns because we were gathering to grow together in Jesus until his return. We'll be ready for Jesus when he returns because we were gathering to grow together in Jesus until his return. It's so important. This is God's way. Be grounded in the gospel. Gather to grow in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel and the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. There's no one more beautiful or glorious or majestic. I pray that you would keep teaching us to be grounded in him and him alone by grace through faith according to the truth of your word. And I pray that as we do this, Lord, we as a church more and more would be faithful in gathering to grow, whether it's in our leadership, whether it's in our community lives, our perspective on life, or our discernment, Lord. Make us hungry to be founded upon the gospel and to be changed by the gospel together according to the truth of your word uh, because we know that it's you doing your work in us, your great love for us and your great kindness to us. We can't wait till Jesus returns, Lord. Keep us faithful until that day, hoping in what he alone has done. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.